Hi everyone, um, welcome to this session, um, Future Forward, Meet the Changemakers, and all the changemakers are here behind me. Um, before I introduce them, I would like to acknowledge that we are on Ghana land today um, and pay my respects to Ghana elders and ancestors and any Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people here today. Um, so we've got a pretty exciting panel here behind me and I have very old schooly written, handwritten some notes about each of them. So here we go. So we've got Alex on the end. Alex Brun is a soci sociology and anthropology student um, and she's a community manager at Youth Inc. Alex also co-facilitates the Unfuck the World program. Um, and next, <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> next, we've got Amelia Chaplin. She's passionate. Oh, some excitement about Amelia. That's great. <laughs> so she's a passionate. She's passionate about demystifying climate science and political jargon for young people. Very important work. Um, and empowering them with the knowledge and tools to make change. Dr. Amelia. And next we've got Panju Nam. He is a proud Ghana and Naranga man. Um, and he's studying chemical engineering and computer science. He's an advocate, ooh. <laughs> Too early on the applause there, guys. Hang on. He's an advocate of Indigenous education and especially education in STEM-related fields. Um, he's taken an interest in sustainability and environmental work in engineering and is currently a sustainability consultant. Next, um, next to Panju, we've got Tiani, um, Tiani Adinson. She's a proud Torres Strait Islander woman from the Kororeg Nation of Thursday Island. She's an <laughs> you guys are very excited for this panel. <laughs> um, so, where if I find where I'm at? Oh yes, Tiani is an activist for positive environmental and ecological change. She's a passionate land and sea country custodian, wildlife cons conservation biologist, sea ranger, state coordinator for SEED in South Australia, and um, has recently started with a climate solutions company called CH4. I'm running out of breath doing all of these bios. They're so, in, they're so impressive. <laughs> but last but not least, we've got Amber. Amber Brock-Fable is a Year 12 student and advocate for youth and environment. She was jointly awarded the 2021 South Australian Environment Young Achiever of the Year in 2021, obviously. <laughs> 
she's also working with the Commissioner for Children and Young People and the Youth Affairs Council, um, engaging in issues around education, mental health and sustainability. That's our fabulous panel. So first up, we're going to have um, we're going to have Alex speak. Good afternoon, everyone. Namani. Nalu Tampindi Alaka. Nalu Gana Yatanga Imperindi. Nalu Tampindi Panaka. Tuila Yatanga. I also want to acknowledge that we're on Ghana land today and pay my respects to. Um, past, present and emerging elders. Um, you're going to have to forgive me for any mispronunciation in that. I am on my own learning journey with First Nations language and I'm hoping to get good at it. Um, so today was a bit of a practice. So, <laughs> um, Life is all about storytelling. Um, it's about sharing knowledge. Um, that's how we pass things generation to generation and I thought really long and hard about what, what did I want to share today? What story did I want to tell? Um, and I decided that it was important for me to share something that was taught to me by a dear friend and mentor, um, Trish Hansen. Um, I want to share with you a concept referred to as deep time. Um, this is something that a man by the name of Carl Sagan came up with in the 70s. Um, he put all of Earth's time onto a one-year timeline. He actually did all of cosmic time, but for the sake of my six minutes today, I'm just going to reel it in at Earth. Um, <laughs> so essentially, if we go 4.5 billion years back, that's the 1st of January on this timeline, and right now where we're at in history is the 31st of December, midnight. So essentially, I'm going to skip all of January because life doesn't begin on this timeline till the 25th of February, which is where we have the emergence of single-celled organisms. Late March, they go through photosynthesis, which means we have an atmosphere. This is a catalyst for an atmosphere, which I think is pretty incredible. Just like this part of when Trish shared this with me, I was so excited. Um, Mid-July, these cells develop a nucleus, um, which is even more incredible because it means that they can have sex. Um, it's the inception for really rich, complex life. This is a peak moment for, for life on this place. Um, that's approximately September 17th on this timeline. By November, we have fungi, fish and land plants. December, we have reptiles, insects and mammals. By mid-December, this is my favourite one. I don't know if anyone else was a dinosaur kid. I was. We, we, we got dinosaurs mid-December. Uh, unfortunately for the dinosaurs, on the 25th of December at 6.30pm, they, uh, they, they went extinct, so... Uh. <laughs> um, December 31st, 11.30am, hominids, so our ancestors, become bipedal. They stand up on two legs, which means that on December 31st, the same day, 11.36pm, we get humans. 11.54pm, same day, we have the oldest record of First Nations Australians. I want to highlight that's the oldest re on record. 11.59pm, it's the end of the last ice age. 11.59 and 58 seconds, 
was the Industrial Revolution, the first wave. We're in fourth wave now, but that's a conversation for another time. So essentially, we've been here for less than two seconds, and look at what we've done with the place. When Trish first shared this with me, I, I was pretty speechless. Um, it really puts into perspective all the things that have happened on this planet um, and how we've just kind of sent them backwards. Uh, we've blown up mountains to access minerals that we've turned into poison that's now in our oceans and in our air. We've removed a third of the trees on the planet um, and we're extracting and extracting and extracting and we're not regenerating um, at a rate fast enough to, to stop the damage. Uh, by deep time logic, we have one-tenth of a second to actually reverse this, um, which is not long, a tenth of a second. Um, interesting fact, by this logic also, the sun will burn out in 14 months' time. That scares me so much. Um, so what can we do about it? Um, as Kira mentioned, I run this program called Ideas to Unfuck the World. I made sure I had permission to swear before I came out today. <laughs> I was worried there'd be children that might be. Um, so that, yeah, I work with an amazing woman called Nia Lewis, um, and we both are massive sociology nerds, and we just can't help ourselves. We think the world's like a messed up place, and we're like, what can we do about it? Um, we work with young people, 17 to 24, and we discovered this global movement uh, that came from Los Angeles called Unfuck the World Day. Um, and essentially once a year people like gather around and celebrate not screwing the world up. And we were like, how can we take that further? Um, so we run this eight week ideas incubator with youth and we take them through systems thinking because um, you're never going to look at a problem, for example, homelessness and be able to solve all of it, right? But if you can think and unpack that system, you can address part of it. So these young people tap into what we call their divine rage, right? What makes you really angry? We live in a society that doesn't really value aggression. I think it's the best weapon in the world um, to solve some of these problems. And we let them weaponize their own stories. They tap into that divine rage and they use it. They put, put a project around it and they can start unfucking some of these messed up problems in the world, which I think is phenomenal. I wish, I wish you could see what some of these young people have done. Um, to give you an example, I had a young man last year who noted that we still had the gay panic defence prevalent in um, South Australia, which is odd. We were the only state that still had it, so he rallied and he rallied and he rallied, and at the end of his project, it was abolished. Um, I've got young women who are beginning their own startup companies around consent training. Things that really piss them off about the world, they now have power. They realise they've always had the power, but they now realise they have it to be able to create some change. Um, I do acknowledge they're all grassroots things though. That brings up the argument of does it actually make a difference or do we need these large dominating monopolies to actually do something? Um, the reason it's so important to me, this, this program, is that I think we live in a society that doesn't embrace deviance enough. We're all too scared to deviate from the norm. We need to do more of it. We need to steer away from these colonial lenses and systems that we have. They're not serving anybody. Um, we need to, yeah, be deviant, be bad, be good at it. <laughs> um, part of a group called the Global Shapers. The name's a bit uh, Global Shapers, but um, 
we do amazing things, I promise you. Um, it's a, the World Economic Forum started it. Um, they've got hubs of young people all over the world and they essentially wanted just to provide them with, with learning and leadership so they can do projects in their relevant cities. Um, I won't go into it too much, but we did this national consultation of young people last year. So 10,000 young people nationally were asked how they felt about issues they're inheriting, inevitably, um, and how they felt about whose responsibility it was to solve them. Um, and there's, there's some funny kind of paradoxical data sets in there where none of them have any trust in, in government. Uh, it was pretty low, uh, but they all believed that the responsibility lay with government to solve some of these issues. Um, I disagree. I think there's something different happening. There's new power emerging where we don't have to go through formal politics to create change. Something to think on. Um, I want to leave you just thinking about thinking. It's called meta-thinking. Um, and what I want people to take from what I've said today is how do I look at the world? How do I think about it? And what am I in service to? Thank you. Thanks, Alex. That was fantastic. Um, next up, we have Amelia. That was incredible, Alex. Um, I first want to acknowledge the beautiful Ghana country that we are on today and pay my respects to elders past, present and future. Sovereignty was never ceded and the rights and traditional knowledge of our Aboriginal communities need to be front and centre as we move through the climate crisis. But what I want to begin on is that since I was born, there have been nearly 41 in 100 year events happen in Australia alone. And I know what you're thinking. She's got a really good skincare regime for someone that's nearly 100 years old. <laughs> but I am only 26, which means almost every year of my life there have been more than one natural disaster event in our country alone, which is threatening the livelihoods of our communities. We're witnessing the harrowing images of cyclones, floods, bushfires, coastal erosion that threatens not only our national identity, but also the livelihoods of billions of communities across the globe. Australia is the most vulnerable developed country to the impacts of climate change, and in our region we've got the next 15 most vulnerable developing countries right on our doorsteps across the Pacific. The evidence is so clear that we are on a trajectory that shows no signs of slowing. Even if we were to transition to a 100% renewable economy overnight, renewable energy economy overnight, we're still locked into minimum 1.5 degrees by 2060, which isn't particularly good news. And I feel like we're so desensitized to all of these images because they're pretty much slotted in after the Neighbours from Hell promos and the sports on the six o'clock news, that the, the gravity of the situation isn't necessarily being felt as much as it should be because we hear about it all the time. There's a new report every other day about how the world's gonna end and the doom and gloom around it. So how do we keep caring about it when we feel so helpless towards it? because we don't own any coal mines, unless someone here does. Maybe we can not do that. But 
for the regular person. What are we meant to do? So I believe that while we wait for the incredible people-led transformative revolution, we should just maybe focus on building our resilience, not only building resilience and regenerating not only our soils and seas, but also our communities. So let me take a moment to tell you all about that. <laughs> our friends and family in New South Wales and Queensland know better than anyone right now that during times of disaster, it's not the UN who come to help, and it's certainly not our current government. It's the young tradie who lives down the road and has a ute and can put your pets and your family in the back and drive you to safer ground. It's the young family of fighter volunteers that stay back to protect any house possible. And it's the old fella at the front bar every Tuesday night who has his dinghy going up what was a main road, finding people on the roofs of their houses as floodwaters threaten to wash them away. At the moment, it's even Fijian workers trying to make a better life for themselves and send money back home that are out of work and are carrying the elderly out of aged care homes to safer ground. It's the Melbourne Sikh community who drive 30 hours from Melbourne into the eye of disaster just to cook a home-cooked meal, regardless of faith. <laughs> These communities know that this is not normal. This is our new normal, though. Things will not return to the way that we've experienced it for the last 50 years. We will continue experiencing such events, then clearly no longer one in a 100 year events. By 2050, we will experience these so-called one in a 100 year events at least once per year. And if we keep going business as usual, government as usual, we're going to find ourselves in much worse situations unless we significantly invest in building the resilience of our communities now. We can't just rely on the anger and rage we feel after these disasters about being disappointed by our government. No matter how many thoughts and prayers and handshaking tours and photo opportunities they want to go on, nothing's changing. We need to build our resilience pre-disaster when we live in a nice, blissful stability. And if we consider resilience as the ability of our social and ecological systems to absorb these stresses and bounce back after disaster, it starts to make a lot of sense why resilience is part of the solution. But it's not just this vague concept. We need to think of community resilience, economic resilience, and environmental resilience. This means we need to take a hard look at the ways our social and governance systems are built, who are making the decisions? How are we accessing critical services? Who's donating money to lock us into gas-led recoveries? And more importantly, who's being left behind? Where are the voices of young people, the voices of traditional owners, the voices of women and those living with a disability, the voices of our strong, vibrant migrant community, the voices of the people that are gonna be here experiencing the future? We need everyone at the table so our resilience can grow. We need strategies that reflect that of the community. The strategies that consider that the sea level is rising the same rate that Port Adelaide is sinking. The strategy that considers the Riverland and how we can continue growing so much of our grape produce that gets made into brilliant wines that we sell across the world. And what happens when the temperatures are too hot and then a flood comes the next year. We need ways that we can access emergency payments, who can access them. We need regeneration of our society because the rules that were made 100 years ago no longer, or should I say have never, served the community that they should support.
But beyond that, we do need to look into our economic resilience as well. We need to ensure there's finance available for adaptation of infrastructure in at-risk communities. We need to not leave these risk zones uninsurable because that's the only place someone could buy their first home. We need to ensure sustainable housing design principles and renewable electricity are built into every new building, but with provisions for passive cooling, raised accessible floor levels, structurally sound to withstand cyclones, adequate for the future we're moving into. Preparing for disaster will make us more economically resilient to disaster. For every dollar spent on adaptation and resilience, we save $25 in the disaster. And when we're already looking at a bill of billions of dollars to clean up Queensland and New South Wales floods, it makes sense why we should build the resilience force first. But most importantly, Mother Nature has been perfecting her art for literally billions of years, as Alex has pointed out. So we need to look towards these nature-based solutions to help us cope with nature-based problems. It's no surprise landslides happen where major development is disrupting the soil structure, that cities are hotter when we start removing thousand-year-old trees, and that the coast that all the development was built on the sand dunes erodes when a huge storm comes through. Each factor relies on each other to be successful. We need to stop looking at climate change as its own unique siloed problem for the greenies and the young people to deal with. The rhetoric that the youth will build the solutions for tomorrow is no longer flattering. It's insulting. We're being asked to have a magic solution for a problem that none of us had any say in. So I can't blame for anyone being in a bit of a tiz when it comes to the doom and gloom cycle of climate change news. But there is so much already happening throughout our communities right here, and it brings me so much hope. In the absence of federal leadership, each state in, each state in Australia has committed to a net zero emissions target by 2050. We're in South Australia already reducing our emissions by 40% since 2005, and that's decreasing each and every year. When a tornado knocked out the electricity transmission line, we built in resilience by getting the battery network, by building in more renewable, clean, green energy that now backs up the eastern states when they have power outages. We build coastal resilience through repopulating our seagrass ecosystems, drawing down carbon, unlocking blue carbon economy opportunities. We see resilience being shaped by the local community groups dedicated to re-establishing our coastal sand dunes. We're seeing it so we don't lose that, that shoreline that is so important to us all and that is also protecting the development right there. We see it through Greening Australia initiatives, regenerating and rewilding nature corridors to have healthier soils, cleaner air and vegetation that can withstand our harsh conditions. We build the resilience of our wine industry through biodynamic and organic practices. We are planting broad beans in the middle of rows to bring nitrogen down to act as a fertilizer instead of just spraying chemicals all across it. We're closing the loop in our kitchens when we put our organic waste into our home compost bins and curbside green bins to tumble into soil to help our parklands, our communities, our backyard if we so wanted it. Most importantly, resilience is being built every time any of us think, think globally and are acting locally. We all have the power to advocate for change and our resilience multiplies every time we make a step to safeguard our future. As Al Gore famously says, the will to live is a renewable energy itself. So I'll just finish on this. 
Extreme climate events will happen more often, we will experience them more frequently and more intensely, more intensely and damages will happen. But if we focus not on despair, but on the strength that we have in building our resilience, we will be better prepared to tackle the climate crisis head on. And if none of this is convincing enough, we, as I have told many of my friends here today, we can't just go in dystopia, so <laughs> community resilience is it. Thank you. That was that was very powerful, Amelia. Um, you know, my family is actually impacted at the moment by the flooding in New South Wales um, and Queensland. So, you know, to hear Amelia speak about it all the way over here and, you know, in South Australia. Um, yeah, you've moved me, sorry. <laughs> um, on that note, next is Panju. Nina Mani. Nina Mani Panyawata, Nina Mani Panyawata, Ghanamirana, Gadlabatli, Manina. So, hello, my name is Panju. I'm a Ghana Naranga man, lived in Adelaide all 22 years of my life. And I'm here today to talk about something not unique to me and that probably thousands of Aboriginal kids have experienced throughout their life. And that's really the education that Aboriginal people deal with, balancing the education of you know, what we're taught through school, high school, and even university, but we're also taught with family, and that's culture and heritage, and those two worlds of education and how they can really, you know, have an impact, and it's a lot to manage as someone growing up and dealing with a lot of the other experiences on top of that. So, um, as you heard before, I'm currently at university studying chemical engineering and computer science. Not that exciting, but, um, yeah, so I am doing that because as a kid, you always kind of face the discrimination of, wow, that's pretty good, you know, math results for an Aboriginal kid. And that kind of just, that didn't sit right with me. And that's really what pushed me all the way through high school, just to get there and, you know, prove these people that spoke wrongly of me and my culture and my people. And that's what got me to university and studying my degree at the moment. But in doing that, I got to university and I had to think, wow, so I've proven these people wrong. I'm here, I'm doing this, but now it's what now, what next? And then through that, I really got involved in a lot of outreach programs where I was really fortunate enough to mentor many other Indigenous kids and give them the opportunity to experience science stuff at a really young age, which from all over SA in really rural communities where they usually might not get that experience firsthand. And that was, like, that's work I really feel passionate about and really did love during you know, my time at university on the side of my study. And through that, I was kind of always, you know, growing up, had these two ideas, these two worlds of these education, you know, traditional cultural, science, math, technology, and really thinking there was never any connection. It's just two things I learned separately, you know, great teachers on both sides through school, but also great teachers in my family, my uncles, my aunties, my grandparents, my cousins. And having these two things that I never really felt truly connected, I then had my eyes opened with these outreach programs and learning the connections of how a lot of stuff I am learning about and a lot of these issues we're dealing with, with environmental, climate, anything socially, there are, the, the answers are there and they're 
backwards, not forwards. And a lot of things we talk about with you know, land, water, all these management systems, they existed many, many years ago. You know? As my cousin said, white Australia is only been around for 45 seconds. But 60,000 years, that's a lot of time to get a lot of things right. And that's what, you know, through the works of Bruce Pascal, who spoke earlier today, he really highlights that. And like finding that out and finding that book, Dark Emu, and reading into that, that was just eye-opening. Like, you know, you can imagine as a young Aboriginal person in this place where I feel so, not excluded, but just so remote, having not much family there, seeing this thing, seeing all this great work Indigenous people did, it's just, it made me feel so good. So after that, I kind of like, you know, went on this huge tangent, figuring out, or just wanting to know, where do they intersect? Where do these two cultural and, you know, mindsets connect? And that was really like, that's really what kind of got me thinking sustainability and work. And it's now kind of my, more of my passion, not, no longer proving to people I'm here, I'm doing this, but also to be like, we can do this. And that we should be doing this. We have been doing this as Aboriginal people, and we can do this now again. So, um, this probably is not going to be as long as great, but I'm going to get to some key points in saying that you touched on a great point earlier about you know being at the table, making decisions, and that's great. But they also got to come to our table with us and respect us as a community and come listen to what we have to say. It's not about us going to them; it's about them coming to us and listening to what we have to say. And yes you know, Aboriginal people should be getting these educations and be getting to a place where they can be at the table when these huge decisions are made. And that's going to be really how I think we protect the Aboriginal culture and heritage and protect Australia in general moving forward. But it's got to be a two-way street. Like, they can't expect us to do all this work, put, our th put ourselves through their institutions, through their justice systems and stuff, not to have them come listen to what we have to say. And these, these ideas of that these ideas that when people talk about indigenous people and this indigenous education being separate, it's really like, that's really just my, I guess, that's my point. I just want to say, I'm going to keep this short, I'm going to keep this tidy, but having two worlds education, it's never been a burden on me, looking back, but it's really been my strength in what I do now. And whether you're indigenous, non-indigenous, I, you know, I urge you, look out, find something you can use, even if you don't find it connected. There's overlap in what you do, whether it be your heritage, your passion, your arts. You can make a huge change. I just want to push people to say you can do it. So thank you. That's me. That's short. Um, I'd like to say one more thing. I'm performing in my family dance group. A few of the followers are back there. Tagatina. We're performing over there at 810 today. The Cuddler uh, Planty. And I'd love to see some of your faces there. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that, Panju. Such an important message um, about bringing, bringing the discussions to our table as well. Um, next up, we have Tiani. <laughs> Thank you, sis. I'm so stoked to be here today and to see so many amazing people, so many friends and family around. The first time I came to Omadelaide, I was two years old with my mum, and now I'm 27 standing up here, which is pretty incredible. So I'm feeling really humbled. This is my favourite festival. I'm really grateful. <laughs> so kapukut, everybody. That means good afternoon in my language of the Kuurag Nations from the Torres Strait Islands up the top of Australia. 
I'd firstly like to acknowledge that the land that we're on today is beautiful Ghana land and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. We're so lucky to be on this country with its deeply rooted spiritual connection to its people that live here with the land and waters that are existing on this space and I'm really lucky to be on Ghana territory and be able to continue to practice my culture and my customs in this place. So thanks to all the Ghana mob. I'd also like to pay respects to my own ancestry that walk by me and guide me every day and acknowledge any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with their ancestry also. I'd also like to acknowledge that we all have incredible ancestry and beautiful parts of our own cultures and until we fully acknowledge where we come from and the work that we've done behind us from our people, whether that's of our own identity and our own doing or not, that until we look back and acknowledge that, we can't actually move forward together in harmony. So I'd like to pay respects to everyone's ancestors here. So I'd just like to start off with a poem that I wrote uh, in the middle of COVID that sort of intersects COVID and this huge pandemic along with the climate crisis. A lot of things about climate change are incredibly intersectional. A lot of our issues with social justice, with First Nations justice, with food security can be solved through climate solutions. So here we go. Fragility and stillness. Hostility and peacefulness. Deathly silence. Empty streets and heavy feet. Uncertainty laps gently at the doors of humble homes tiptoeing across eggshells of maybes, would-bes, and could-bes. Never knowing when the ponderous cloak of this new paradigm will shift or lift into adjusted states of being, knowing, and doing. Some manage to find their creative vice, leaning into a life stripped of their supposed Western ideals, relishing in love for colour and sound, spice and new knowledge. Others struggle dramatically, staring into the uncontrollable fate of losing stability in the path they worked so hard to lay before them. She is not mild-mannered and does not discriminate. For once, the weight rests firmly on the shoulders of the collective. Hearts ignite and then sink, swirling into a vortex of unprecedented emotions. Compassion and empathy, married to gratitude for the bliss and beauty that remains in the things that truly matter as we are stripped naked of the imaginary constructs we have allowed to define and confine us. Hope, oh sweet hope, that a new sunrise will spark a brighter tomorrow. Like a phoenix, we will rise through suffering and adjust our innate desires to encompass a more holistic and balanced world, where the health of the mother and support for one another is valued far more highly than economical gain. Together we are held in the supportive nest of community and togetherness alongside all other living beings. Thank you. <laughs> so as my Bala Panchu said before, First Nations people have meticulously cared and nurtured for these lands for tens of thousands of years. Majority of young people are uniting and liberating themselves in the freedom of expressing themselves as whoever they want to be. However they want to be identified as, as a result of the wisdom and knowledge and work of the ancestors who fought so hard for our equity and justice that we have today. We are feeling into our sense of connection, our innate desire to be and radiate love, to nurture our planet, 
and to break down the constructs of our mind that confine us. Slowly we gather in a beautiful display of collective oneness, honouring our true identities and returning to undertake our role as caretakers of this planet. I deeply feel in the power and history of this earth and can't help but find a sense of hope for her future, for she has seen destruction before, over and over and over again. And she survived. First Nations mob have watched this land change over tens of thousands of years and have adapted with it both genetically and culturally. Climate change is one of the greatest threats facing humanity, but we also know that it's an opportunity to create a more just and sustainable world. Before colonisation, this land was meticulously managed. Each grain of dirt, every species and all plants were looked after. Each valued and recognised as an important piece of a larger system, because despite there being over 260 diverse language groups within Australia and over 600 dialects, we all had one thing in common, and that was our care for country and our connection to spirit and this place to look after it, not as a separate part of us, but as an intricate part of each and every one of us. We're a whole system and we are all a really unique part of this ecosystem. We're not above the environment and we're not above nature. We were and are custodians to our country. This unifying philosophy of caring for country led to the most sustainable civilization known to humankind, which is our First Nations mob here in Australia and all other indigenous groups across the world. Indigenous knowledge is centre nature and places value on the threads that connect everything. Valuing and understanding this is indigenous science. Our sustainable practices have survived all other societies' rises and downfall, all wars and all disasters, all resource booms and eventual declines. In a time where society's lack of sustainability is a detriment to our continual survival, the world has, it, has so much it can learn from us and our continued traditions and our ancestors. An indigenous approach to science has resulted in the continuation of the oldest civilization in the world, whereas a modern scientific approach has undoubtedly pro provided an abundance of technolog technological advancement. Neither is more intrinsically advanced. Both have incredible value to us, and as a society, I do believe that we can work with both. Most of us are conscious of the smaller individual impacts, which are obviously important. So how do we collectively move forward, work together, and build a more regenerative future? Be an ally to our people, but do so with an open mind that the knowledge that we hold as the longest continuing and surviving culture in the world can not only help ourselves, but help our nation as a whole. Allow First Nations people to occupy a seat at the table in whatever space that you're in. Allow for First Nations leadership and truly nurture First Nations people to be able to have their ideas and their, and, and their ancestors amplified but correctly. Stand with us during the good times, but also the bad. But understand that you may not have all the answers right now or will never experience a day in the life of a First Nations person. We have such an amazing earth that we live and breathe on. There is so much connectedness within nature and within each and every one of us. We have an abundance of solutions available to us right now that just with a bit of funding and a bit of push for government, we can truly access and change the world that we know. There are solutions within the way that we manage nature, 
within food security. I was looking at Paul Hawkins' uh, readings and book recently, and he created this list of 100 climate solutions that are feasible and available right now if we choose to tap into them. The top ones that have the most impact is educating or being able to give all women education. And the second one is about family planning and ensuring that all women are able to correct to be able to make choices about the way that they manage their families. Those two solutions alone will have the most impact to creating better change within climate. Other really amazing things that will help solve what we're doing right now is within food security. We have far more than enough land to feed the world over and over again, and that's been proven through Paul Hawkins' work, so you can have a look at his stuff through regeneration. We've got an abundance of technology and an abundance of solutions. There's epic things like uh, tiles. The other day I saw some carpet tiles that actually draw carbon dioxide down into these tiles and turn them into organic carbon. And that's carpet that can be put into housing. So there's really far advanced technological things that we can adapt. But there's also smaller things, as I said before, about reducing food waste and looking after education for women. As an individual, I know it can feel really overwhelming when you look at this space and think, what can you do? The biggest thing I urge you all to do today is to have a look at your banks and your super accounts and look at where you're accidentally funding different projects. You'd be really surprised as to where the money that you're putting away for your savings ends up and what sort of investments it makes while you're not using it. So have a look online. You can look up ethical super and banking companies. That's probably the quickest thing you can do. I set up a new bank account a few months ago. It took me two minutes online. And you can make sure that that stays away from any dirty money that goes into fossil fuels. So get that done. And know that you all have a really intricate part to play within this. All of us have deep wisdom and knowledge from our background, from the knowledge that we choose to invest in right now. And we should harness that and tap into that. Whether you're within the arts, the sciences, sociology, humanities, we all have an amazing abundance of knowledge and an amazing abundance of things that we can do to help one another out. Honour responsibility as it calls. Do your bit in this. If there's one thing that you can do in your life that makes a difference, have a look at something that makes a difference within climate solutions because it is the health of everything that exists and all of us together. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you, Tiani. Um, last of all, we have Amber, but certainly not least of all. Um, welcome up, Amber. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm a settler on the unceded lands of the Ghana people, and I pay my respects to, my, to their elders past, present, and emerging. I think I have the hardest gig coming after my fellow changemakers, Tiani, Panju, Alex, and Amelia. Aren't they amazing? Yeah. I'd like to thank Womb Adelaide for this opportunity for the community to engage in meaningful conversations about renewing our relationship to the planet and for implementing a sustainable festival. 
I'm standing here before you as a 17-year-old youth and climate activist. And unless you have been... Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> unless you've been hibernating for the last 30 years, the climate crisis was declared long before I was even born. We have not only lost decades arguing the extent of this crisis, but consecutive governments in Australia on all sides of the political spectrum have mishandled the protection of our planet for too long. Young people, along with other vulnerable communities, are disproportionately impacted by rising sea levels, increasing temperatures, frequency of catastrophic weather events, habitat loss, and the extinction of animals at a devastating rate. We all know at this pace, my future is looking very grim. That is why it is imperative that we are all here today to discuss what a renewed relationship to the planet looks like. In 2022, we need to move beyond divisions, beyond politics. Communities need, and they already are creating substantial environmental change. We need to pave a new avenue forward together. Just imagine one where all species live free and just. One where native animals liberally inhabit our parklands. One where friends meet in the pub, smile as they reminisce the days when their future seemed destroyed. And one where children will listen to their parents' spooky bedtime stories about a dying world consumed by bushfires, flood, and war. But the children will fall asleep soundly as their parents laugh that they, along with everyone else, became superheroes, together holding back the torrential rain, the flood, the pain, together creating a just and sustainable planet. But today, we need to mobilize and we need to unite with one another so that we can afford a future for us and the generations to follow, for the native animals and plants, and for the stories to be kept telling. We can and we must reimagine environmental possibility. We can and we must regenerate the world's flora and fauna. And we can and we must renew the human-to-earth relation. But what does this relationship actually look like? I'm not really sure. You probably don't really know either. That is why we have to imagine. To do this, I'm going to take us on a bit of a journey. We are going to travel in time. Imagine it is 2030, I'm 25, and once again, we're here at the Womadelaide Planet Talks Forum. Remember the 20s and the 10s? Gee, what a time. I remember feeling very anxious about my future, especially after the rain bombings and black summers. But remember the energy, the momentum. Together we seized the day. We reimagined our world and renewed our communities. People wanted the change, and it's the people who were changing starting small in their school, their households, their work. But together that shift was great. 
And here in 2030, we can celebrate the people who created the Just Transition for Everyone campaign, ensuring no one is left behind. I remember seeing headline after headline of energy suppliers independently transform from fossil fuel resources to renewable resources. Today, here in 2030, there are now countless developments of wind and solar, each implemented in partnership with First Nations communities. Obviously, here in a resource-rich country, that transition was easy. The renewable energy sector has allowed us to invest in sustainable, affordable, and appropriate housing, especially as in 2022, 42% of all carbon emissions were produced in the home. Here in 2030, we are finally using the technologies that were available in the 20s and even the 10s. But hey, better late than never. Communities have individually implemented batteries for all areas, which has assisted with the sustainable electrification and reducing living costs. Our native animals and plants have thrived as people and organizations revegetate their land. I can now say that the koala is no longer extinct in the eastern states of Australia. And I still have a vivid memory of South Australia leading the world in renewable energies. Remember the last days of 2021? Our wind farms and solar systems provided 100% of local demand during that week. I know this probably doesn't sound as amazing as it did back in 2021, seemingly due to the fact that every day here in 2030 is powered by renewable energies. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, last week, and next. In South Australia, car manufacturers have established electric vehicle productions, with each car being made from recyclable materials. Yeah. <laughs> Here now in 2030, half of the population drive electric vehicles powered by solar, which uses less than a third of energy that was being used with diesel or petrol cars back in 2022. We have the same size cars and the same size homes for less than a third, for less than half of the energy that we used back in 2022. Whilst the rest of it, the world catch up to our progression we will still experience some forms of the climate crisis, but nowhere near the extent that was being measured back in 2022. That is because of the immediate and collective action that we all took back in the day. Now let's come back to 2022. Although I said quite a lot about a hypothetical 2030, in fact, this is a reality this is what we can all achieve together with enough unity and with enough imagination. One can imagine a renewed planet, but it takes another and another and another to power an idea into a worldwide change. And when we're all running at the same pace, even when some get injured, we make sure they don't fall behind. That is when we can declare a change. We need to take responsibility and we need to take this now. When you plant a tree, you inspire another to plant a tree and another. You form a ripple of restoration, a surge of liberating the earth. 
When you give, you educate. You move a community, a world, a wave of inclusion and renewing. When you imagine, you create. You create a movement, a mobilization, a swell of diversity, a voice of unity, a harmony of change. And when we're all singing the same melody, the chorus feels equal and it feels just. And the earth feels the change, transitioning from the mundane to the sublime, and we feel the change. The change as we create an equitable, fair, and sustainable society. Thank you. Thanks for that, Amber. Um, that was brilliant as well. You've all been fantastic this afternoon. Um, we are quickly running out of time, but I just wanted to throw a question to you all, um, either taking out of Amber's leaf just then, um, taking a leaf out of Amber's book, sorry. Um, did you all want to talk about your um, ideal future or otherwise, um, talk about what we can be doing right now on an individual level as Tiani did in her speech. Do we all want to say something to wrap up in the last five minutes? We'll start with you, Alex. Okay. Um, I guess this is kind of odd for someone on a youth panel, but I do have an eight-year-old daughter. Um, so when I think about her and the kind of world she's inheriting, that, that terrifies me. It makes me sick to my stomach to think that what we're doing to the planet means it's just like rotting beneath her feet. Um, and then, you know, is it even possible for her to then when she's an adult have children, what are they inheriting? It terrifies me. Um, so I guess, yeah, I think on an individual level we should all be doing things and it comes back to what Amber said, but when we stand in unity, when we're all doing it together, it's actually really powerful. Um, I acknowledge it feels futile most of the time. I feel that every day I'm um, doing this kind of work. Um, but power in numbers. Um, go community. <laughs> yeah, I guess I absolutely believe that the power in community. But I guess to, to maybe take it back to a really simple thing that everyone can do, which I'm sure all my friends are sick of me talking about, but put your organic waste in the green bin. If we all sustainably put all of our green organic matter into a proper curbside green recycling bin or your home compost, it will reduce those really dangerous methane emissions in the atmosphere by so much. It will make such an important contribution to mitigating the worst impacts of climate change. It's just so easy. That's my solution. I guess for the big picture, I mean, we all know the saying, think globally, act locally, but um, that would probably, for you know, this big discussion about climate and sustainability, that would really, you can't emphasize that enough. But for what I was really touching, I just, you know, I can't urge everyone enough to just learn some language, whether it's the language of where you are or where you're from. I just encourage everyone to learn some language, you know, yeah.
We do have an abundance of solutions available, but we need top-down system change. This is a huge issue, and it's people in power who really make a difference. It's these government-funded fossil fuel companies that have the largest impact on our Earth. It's not the everyday person running their life normally. We're about to come up to an election. Please make sure that your vote counts. It is incredibly important. We run in this Anthropocene where human impact, or as my friend Costa said to me recently, the capitalism scene, or something along those lines, I'm sure you'll correct me later. <laughs> but essentially we run in this world where human impact and the changes that we've made through the Industrial Revolution and the way that we've decided to live our lives has had such a ridiculously large impact that we've changed the way that the world is warming and that's just from our existence here. The way that governments have power within these massive companies is nuts. Your vote is incredibly important. Please educate yourself about where your votes are going. If you're voting for not a major party and you're going for an independent, make sure you check where the votes end up going because they do go back to Labor and Liberal eventually if they're not the one that gets selected. So make sure that you use the power of your vote. Rally your politicians, send emails about what's happening. Make sure that climate change is an issue on the forefront of everyone's minds. With enough people power and enough of us coming together and sending these emails and making these issues apparent to our leaders, change will happen. But it is going to take all of us to have top-down system change. So make sure you do that. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, everything that's said is very good. Um, I would just say vote as well because I cannot vote at all and my future depends on your vote. I'm going to inherit your vote and the possible bad decisions that may occur with that. So please take responsibility this year. It's very much a political hot potato, I'll say, the climate crisis and a lot of other social inequities. Um, I'll also say build connections with your community, um, friends and family, because we are going to transition to a greener society one day, and hopefully that'll be soon, but it might be tough for some people, so make sure you do not leave anyone behind. Thank you. And on that note, we do have to wrap up because we've definitely run out of time. But thank you all for coming and thank you to our great panel.